we're going to be looking at verses 25 down to the end of chapter 2 and the first two verses of chapter 3. Let me just give you a bit of a reminder of what we talked about last week. Last week, we followed Paul as he exposed the false confidence of the Jews. We saw that the Jew had been the recipient of great privileges and an exalted position that God had given to them and brought to them. The privilege was enumerated in a number of different ways. They had been given the name Jew, which actually was a name that was a derivative of the name Judah, and the name actually means one to be praised. And so they were a people to be praised. From them would rise up the Messiah, and the Messiah would gather them in a reign over all the nations, and praise would be brought to him and to his people. And so they were the people to be praised. They'd also been given the law. That law laid out for them not only God's moral commands, but it also laid out God's provision when they broke those commands. The means under the law by which they could find forgiveness and atonement in the place that God appointed through the sacrifices that God appointed and the mediation of the priest that God had appointed. And so there was a way through the law to follow and seek a way to be holy, but also a way to be forgiven so that they might approach a holy God to worship him and know him and be his people. And so this was in the law as well. So they were to be a people who rested in the law. That was to be their position. Also, they had in this situation been brought into a covenant relationship with God, a relationship where he had declared himself to be their God and that they were his people. And as such, they had a right or a privilege to boast in the Lord or boast in God. And you'll see that just in the verses prior to the passage that we're going to be considering this morning, that this was to be the boast or the declaration of the Jew. They were to, in a sense, in the old NIV, it said they boasted in their relationship with God, but it was. God had given them a covenant relationship. And then beyond that, They had been taught and instructed in the law, in the word of God, and so they knew those things that were good and true and right. It had been granted to them to sit and learn from the scriptures that had been translated to them, and this too was a great thing. So they knew the things that were excellent and the things that were good. And then added to these privileges was this purpose or this position God had given them. God had raised them up to be ambassadors for himself before all the nations. To them fell the duty to educate the world the ways of the one true God. But, as we learned last week in our passage, the Jews had largely taken these privileges and this position, and instead of receiving as an unmerited grace, instead of receiving it as a mercy from God, instead of being humbled and through it casting themselves in an utter reliance upon God and utter gratitude upon God by reason of those things, by reason of those privileges and by reason of that exalted position, They had turned that grace and mercy of God to them as a point of self-assertion and self-ascendancy and self-importance over others. And this led them to believe that they had a kind of immunity from the judgment of God that allowed them to act in ways that actually dishonored the God that they were privileged to know. That actually, Paul says, brought blasphemy against God by themselves, the Jew. So Paul is addressing the Jew at this point in time in his letter, and he's revealing to them these abuses, and he's speaking to them in this pointed manner so that they would recognize that they are facing under God the same judgment that the Gentile is facing, that they can't differentiate themselves 
from the Gentile and believe that somehow because of who they were and because of the privileges God had given them and the position that God had given them among the nations that they were immune from God's judgment. No, just the other, the case. They were guilty before God, guilty as the Gentile was, more guilty because they'd been given all these privileges and granted this position and they were answerable to God. Therefore, they were in need of the gospel that God had provided through Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul is going in his argument. You'll see this from the middle of Romans chapter 1 until the middle of Romans chapter 3. Basically, Paul is building an argument for why all people need the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ alone. But the Jew, when he has been brought to this point in the argument, responds by doubling down on his heritage at this point in time. He basically says to Paul, I'm a member of the circumcision to be thought that somehow I'm under the same sentence as the Gentile is preposterous. And so Paul picks up his argument by saying this. We look at now Romans 2, verses 25 through 3-2. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, who are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly, first, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Let's pray just briefly. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is what your spirit has given for our instruction ideas, modes, ceremonies, rituals that we don't entirely understand or appreciate, but in them a lesson for us today. We're here to listen to you. We ask that you would teach it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a number of points this morning. The first thing I want you to see here again is the basic failure of the Jews. And it's this, and this is what Paul is saying. The failure of the Jew was to believe that a symbolic right held any meaning without a spiritual reality of faith lying behind it. The idea that some symbolic ritual or sacrament held any kind of meaning if there wasn't a reality of faith lying behind it. So in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, Paul is basically reasserting the very argument that he's already made up to this point in time, that they could not claim on their privileges and their positions that they had a right standing with God. For the Jew, the right of circumcision, which was conducted on the male child on their eighth day after their birth had become the primary expression of the identity that they were the people of God. This identity found in this religious rite had become, in a sense, the point of their supreme national identity. Circumcision, which was meant to express a spiritual commitment of the people of God in response to His covenant to be their God and for them to be their people. 
a circumcision that God had given as a right to Abraham after he by faith had received the promise that God would make of him a great nation and through him bless all the nations of the earth. And then in response to the faith that he had in God, God called them to demonstrate his commitment to him alone, to worship him alone and be separated out to him alone by circumcising himself and all those in his household. And you read about that in Genesis chapter 17. This was the point at which the Jews had rallied around to say this is supremely the expression of who we are as the people of God. And you know, There's some discussion as to what the meaning of circumcision was, but I think it could be best understood in this way. As a people covenanted in relationship with the holy God, the Jews were called upon to put aside living in the flesh and living for themselves and living in carnality, and they were to live holy dedicated to God alone in complete obedience to Him. And circumcision was a sense, their act of dedication or their symbolic expression that they were completely dedicated to God alone. It was a physical representation of the people's belief and faith and then dedication to God as their God. They weren't going to live in their own flesh. They weren't going to live by the carnal rights of all the people around them, but they were to follow God's instruction and live for Him and Him alone. Their hearts were completely given to God alone. And yet this right had become a point of great national pride. When the Jew would speak down to the Gentile, they wouldn't simply refer to the person as a Gentile. They referred to him as an uncircumcised Gentile. That's really, that's really how bad he was. You remember the story of David as a young boy. The camp of the Israelites are meeting against the camp of the Philistines, and Goliath is out there mocking them and saying, come out any one of you and fight with me and... David's response is this, who is this Philistine who defies the living armies of the living God? No, that's not what he said. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That's the ultimate insight, this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of living God. But this rite of circumcision was merely a symbolic expression of the spiritual commitment the people were to give in living before God alone. On more than one occasion, God had, all the way back in the Old Testament, reminded the people that they were not to count on physical circumcision as equal to the spiritual act of complete and utter surrender of themselves to God. It wasn't equal to the act of, in their hearts, turning away from their own fleshly impulses and living in complete surrender to God. And so Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, confronts the complaining, the groaning and disobedient children of Israel and he says to them circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer it's your life that needs to change it's your heart that needs to change and then in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 the prophet comes before the spiritually rebellious people of Judah and this is what he says circumcise yourselves to the Lord now these are the people of Judah these are the circumcised Jews circumcise yourself to the Lord. circumcise, I said, circumcise yourself to the Lord, he says. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil that you have done. Again, in Jeremiah 9, 25, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, and God says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness and distant places, for all these nations are really uncircumcised. 
And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in the heart. You see, the failure of the Jew, again, was to believe that this symbolic rite held any meaning without an underlying spiritual reality behind it. If there was no obedience, no turning to God with all their hearts, no turning away from a life lived in their own flesh, then the physical circumcision would not only not cover them, it would expose them instead. It would ironically parody the very thing that they were proclaiming and expressing of themselves. They were breaking the vow their circumcision was meant to give witness to. Another way you might think of this is, you could think of the marriage ring that you wear on your finger if you're married. You'll remember that when you were married, the pastor may have held up the ring and said, this ring of pure gold in this circle was to be an emblem of the pure and unending faith that you were now mutually pledging to one another. It was a symbol of the fidelity you're pledging to one another. And you might ask a man who you know to have been unfaithful to his wife if he is faithful to his wife. You might even be able to prove to him and show him the evidence that you found and discovered that he's been faithful to his wife. And if he lifts up and says, ah, look at this ring. Look at the ring I'm wearing. I'm a faithful husband. I'm still wearing it. Would that be a testament to his faithfulness? It would be a joke. It would be an ironic parody of the reality of his life. That's what Paul is saying is taking place with the Jew. You're boasting in your uncircumcision. It's just an outward right. It's supposed to be expressive of an inward truth that's not there. And so now we see the condemnation of the Jew. Paul says, he's again here in this next section, he's merely repeating an idea that the prophets of old had repeated. It's that you're not special because of this right. It only places upon you a demand that you live according to its meaning and faithful obedience to God. And if you don't, you're under his judgment. In fact, here's what Paul says. The Gentile who you revile, who obeys God and yet is uncircumcised, is in the right position, not yourselves. And his example will be brought against you as a witness before the judgment of God. You think you're standing over him, he's going to stand over you and pronounce his judgment upon you. And, and here again, Paul is repeating an idea that was repeated by the prophets and an idea that was repeated by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 12, we have an account in which the Lord Jesus brings about a great healing. And as a result, the Pharisees come along and the Jewish leaders come along and they say that he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. He's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus squares off against them in an argument. And he says, now listen. Satan cannot be divided against Satan. If a house is divided, it can't stand. And how can you say that I do this by the power of Satan? If I do this by the power of Beelzebub, by what power do your sons cast out demons? Well, they can't answer his logic. They can't respond to him. So then they have to fish for some other way of coming against him. So they say, well, if you're the Messiah and who you say you are, do a miracle for us. Now, he's just done a tremendous miracle. Here, what they're doing is they're actually speaking like Satan had spoken once before. If you're a Messiah, speak to those stones and turn them into bread. Jesus said it's a wicked generation that seeks after a sign. And then in Matthew 12, 41 and 42, this is what he says to them. The men of Nineveh, those were Assyrians, Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, mind you. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah's here. The queen of the south, another Gentile, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it 
for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So you see, Paul in this passage is simply teaching what Christ had taught. The very ones they despised and looked down upon as inferior, the uncircumcised Gentile, the one who is faithful to God's word without knowing all the rites and knowing all the rituals and gave God fully his heart would stand over them as a witness before God and so fulfill their own condemnation. Here's the third thing we'll see here. Paul gives to them now a confirmation of what the true Jew is. He gives them a confirmation of what a true Jew is. A Jew is not one who is one only outwardly. He is one who is one inwardly. His heart is completely yielded in faith to God. And again, this is not a new idea with Paul, and this is not a new idea to the Jews. Over and over again, this idea is repeated throughout the Old Testament. There is throughout the Old Testament this idea constantly repeated that it is a remnant of the faithful among the Jewish nation that God would spare and raise up and bring into victory. Over and over again, God promises that he will punish the nation of Israel for their sins, but that God would rescue the remnant who are true to him. Take your Bibles for a moment and go to Ezekiel 9, verses 3 through 5. I might read to you a little more than I think I'll read to you 3 through 7. It's a horrific passage. And I don't want you to be distracted by some of the horror that God is expressing here because God is simply prophesying the judgment that's going to be coming upon their land because of their unfaithfulness to him. Ezekiel is writing at the same time in which basically Jeremiah was writing and to the same people. Ezekiel has this vision of these men who rise up and they have swords that are risen up for judgment. And then as these men who have risen up for judgment are standing before the nation of Israel and before the city of Jerusalem, then Ezekiel has a vision that the glory of God is departing from the temple of Israel. And now he writes this in verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. God is departing. He's taking his glory from the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn in his hide. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Mark those who are faithful to me, who mourn at the lack of faithfulness among my people. To the others, those who had swords in their hand, he says to them in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill, and do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young and maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were before the temple. And then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. It's a terrible declaration of the judgment that through years of resistance and rebellion against God, which we read at the end of Second Chronicles, to such an extent that it says there was no remedy for the people, for they refused to listen to the prophets that God had sent them to, where God finally relinquishes and relents to the judgment they're bringing upon themselves. But it's a terrible expression of judgment. But even here, at the end of this ongoing procession of national rebellion against God, you see that God has his eye on a remnant who are marked. Mark, because they've been faithful to God and they grieve the sin of their city and God spares them from judgment. This was an understanding that was reinforced by the prophets over and over again from Isaiah all the way down to Malachi. But interesting enough, during the time of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a different idea began to take shape within the rabbinic tradition. It was an idea 
that the faithfulness of the ancient fathers of Israel was enough to cast merits upon all the children of Israel. They would live under the merit of the faithfulness of their fathers in such a way that the rabbinic idea began to be declared that if you were a son by way of circumcision, you could not go to hell. In fact, there was an idea that was expressed in the Mishnah that Father Abraham actually stood guard over hell to make sure that no circumcised Jew would ever pass into hell because he'd been circumcised. And he had the merit of his fathers placed upon him. Paul is correcting this. He's repeating the old prophetic message of God's word. A true Jew was of the remnant of the faithful whose hearts were marked, who were cut apart in dedication to God alone. And to that person, praise is going to be given, not from people, not because he's receiving the honor because of some rite or some sacrament that he's carried out, but he'll receive praise from God, which means they will enter unto and they will receive the true meaning of the name Jew. They'll be praised. God will give his praise to them. And here's an application for us. There's a danger in resting in our assurance, our assurance of faith and our assurance of eternal life in a ritual or a sacrament that's provided by the church. The baptism the church offers will not save you, nor will it speak on your behalf before the judgment of God. Neither will taking the Lord's table on a regular basis bear any saving impact on your life in and of itself. These are simply symbols of grace that's been received by faith. Baptism is a way in which you symbolically express that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ completely, that in his death for your sins on the cross, you reckon yourself to have died with him, that all your sins were paid by him and nailed to the cross and taken into his death, and that as a condemned sinner you have received and you found reprieve in his sacrifice on your behalf, and that in him rising from the dead, you now live and rise in the power of your resurrected Lord to serve him and follow him and receive from him all of his life. That's what you say when you're being baptized. And so we say things like when we're baptizing a person, which we do by immersion, baptized into his death, raised to newness of life. And it's a symbolic expression of the spiritual reality that God brings to a person when they put all their faith in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, when we partake of the Lord's table and we drink the cup and we eat the bread, we're basically declaring that our whole life is predicated upon a complete faithful participation in the life of Jesus Christ. He's everything to us. He's bread and water to us. He's the one who sustains us. Our faith and our hearts are to Him and Him alone. And we recognize that this we've received by His mercy and His grace. We live by Him. But these symbols can be empty if they do not directly relate to a spiritual reality in your life. Paul warned the Corinthians that if they drank the Lord's table or they came before the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and I think it's this, thinking in any way they deserved it, in any way that it imposed upon them some power or grace in itself. He said if they came to the table in an unworthy manner, that it would bring only judgment upon them. Rituals cannot put you in a favorable position with God. They're guides to your faith. They're points at which you activate yourself in the grace that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And and beyond these symbols, what we see is that the Jew had beyond the symbol and behind the external expression of circumcision, they had rooted themselves in the heritage they'd received from their fathers in a sense that they were okay because they were embedded in a national identity of people who had declared and been faithful to God. In the same way, it's possible that you can begin to think that you are secure and safe before the judgment of God because you grew up in the church or you attend the church 
or you call upon yourself the heritage of the faithful, or you read Christian biographies and you're excited by what men of the faith have done in the past and these are your people and you identify with them to such extent that this is what is my security and this is what my safety is. It's true. You can think because, well, you know, I come from a religious family with a long line of Lutherans or Methodists or Presbyterians or Baptists or nonconformists. I remember when I was a young boy, a gentleman in our church was an elder, was telling a joke on his mother. I didn't know he was telling a joke. But he said his mother came from a small town and back in the Midwest and that she was a member of the Baptist church and there was a Christian church on the corner and the town was getting so small that these two churches couldn't survive anymore and so there was a meeting to bring them together and join them together and at some point in the meeting she stood up and said listen my father was a Baptist my grandfather was a Baptist my great and great great grandfathers were Baptists and I was born a Baptist and raised in the Baptist and I've been a Baptist my whole life and I'm not about to become a Christian now Well, I realized he'd taken it from somebody else, but at the time I thought he was telling us the truth. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, it's actually a reality that can take place. Somehow, you wrap yourself up in some heritage that's been yours, that you read about, or that you uphold, some heroes of the faith that inspire you, and then you think that their life and somehow is an anchor for the spiritual reality in your life, that this is what secures you, and it doesn't. If you don't follow in the train yourself, if you don't yield to these truths, if there's not a response in your own life of complete surrender to the Savior for His own mercy and His own grace as an individual, they don't speak on your behalf. They speak against you. They witness against you. I told my children when they were growing up that we've kind of ruined them. We've ruined them because the world will be against them and Satan is against them. And then if they decide to rebel, they're going to remember all the things they've taught. It's going to speak against them as well. It's going to make their lives miserable. We haven't done them any favor. Well, the heritage of the Christian faith doesn't put you in an advantageous position where you gain more merit before God. It puts you in a responsibility. Now, the Jew has listened to all that Paul has said here. We'll make a brief transition here. He's listened to Paul's arguments, and now he comes up with a series of questions that are basically dodges that he gives in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, but we're just going to look at one of them. We're just going to look at one of his protests, and basically what he says is this, then what's the benefit of being a Jew? If all it does is it loads it up so that I'm under greater judgment, then what's the benefit of being circumcised? What's the advantage of being a Jew at all? Actually, it's kind of a fair question. The Jew could look through the history of his people and see that their privileges and position had brought upon them significant suffering. They had been the messengers of God to the nations, and the nations didn't like their message. And you know what happens when you don't like the message? You kill the messenger. They had been the ones who had brought the Ten Commandments to the nation, and the nations didn't like being pricked by the goad of the Ten Commandments. And so they turned against the messenger of the Jews and brought their wrath upon them. And then they were the people from which the Messiah had risen up, and Satan didn't like that. Satan sought to destroy the child, the Messiah, and if he couldn't destroy the child, the Messiah, what would he do? He would persecute and seek to destroy the mother, the Jews. He's done it throughout their history. They could see the story of satanic efforts to bring destruction upon them, to kill the Messiah, and then now to bring destruction upon them because they were the mother of the Messiah. And what misery and what difficulty it had in being a Jew. What benefit? Look at this. And then not only that, when they didn't obey God and they rebelled against God, God was against them too. He was punishing them and he was bringing his judgment against them because the responsibilities had been placed upon them. 
The question is kind of fair. The question is, what's the benefit of being circumcised, being a Jew, having this identity? And Paul now tells them of their advantage. He says to this question, what's the benefit of being a Jew? He says, much in every way. All kinds of benefits. Too much to number is basically what he's saying. You have great advantages. You have, and think about it for a moment, you have the testimony, a national testimony of a great legacy, a story of God's work and pursuit to bring you as a people to himself and save you as a people to himself and lift you up as a people to bring a message to the world. You have the story of Abraham who followed and went out from his people to be faithful to God and received a promise from God and received the promise in old age that from him would rise up one who would, and through him and through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You have the story of God raising up a Joseph, provided providential care for the family of Israel and preserved not only them but all of Egypt in the midst of a great famine. And, and then you have the story of God putting together and consolidating a great nation while they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt but maintaining their identity. And then at just the right moment, God coming in a miraculous work of 10 tremendous plagues and then the Passover, God leading them out from bondage and bringing them through the parted Red Sea and then God leading them by a cloud that would cover them by day and a pillar of fire by night and guide them through the wilderness and feed them with manna and then miraculously lead them into the promised land and grant them victory before nations that were armed when they had nothing but sticks and staves to go against them with. You had a great story. You have heroes like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and you have heroes like Daniel even in the midst of our times of suffering. Great is your story. Great is the witness what God has given you. Think about it. Look at your own life. Look at my life. Wonderful advantages that I had growing up in the home that I had where God had met my father when he was in college and worked in my mother's heart when she had gone off to college, turned them completely to himself. The testimony, the change that God had brought in their life and then to witness it and see their witness before my eyes and bringing into our home their friends who were pastors and missionaries around the world and at night, you know, at those days, we didn't just go run off and get on a phone. We didn't have those things, right, where these apps were where you play games or were mesmerized in front of a television set. You know, we, we actually snuck in when we were supposed to go to bed and hid behind the couch to listen to our parents and their friends as they told stories and talked to one another. Or we just didn't want to go to bed. We just sat there and listened to them. And Wonderful stories. Tremendous stories of how God was at work in different places around the world. And in every way, in every way, we have these expressions and when Paul says first of all that's what it says in Romans 3 2 he doesn't give us a second a third and a fourth so when he says first of all he means this chiefly above everything else most importantly a significance that outweighs all of the other things that I can think of that are an advantage of being a Jew above everything else he says significantly to you has been committed the oracles of God now the word oracles was used four times in the New Testament and it just simply means this. The oracle is God's spoken communication to people. It's God's divine revelation of his will and his purposes to individuals. God had given them his word. He had spoken through Moses and they had their first five books of the Old Testament that we have, the Torah. He had continued to speak to them to the prophets and all the rest of their sacred scripture was filled in and, and nothing nothing 
gave them a greater advantage in life and a greater importance than this. God had spoken to them. God had spoken to them. There's nothing that was more meaningful than that. I remember when I had finished my freshman year of college and it was the summertime and I decided to go to a church camp that was in Oregon and there were calculations in my mind on why I was going to go but the primary calculation was that there was this really lovely girl that had grown up at that camp and I wanted to catch her eye. I wanted to see if that might be the gal for me. And I remember going to the camp, and there was a large tabernacle where people would come and meet, and there'd be maybe a thousand people that would meet for the services. And and on that occasion, there was a well-known speaker that was famous across the country that was speaking, and uh, that didn't really matter to me. I found out where the girl was sitting with her parents, and I positioned myself so that I was in eye line between the pulpit where the pastor was speaking and where the girl was sitting. And I even turned my head just a little bit. You know, I'd been a boy the year before, but I thought maybe I was moving towards becoming a man. And I was hoping she might recognize that it might be the case. So I positioned myself there. And then when the service was over, although I wanted to approach her, I didn't, I didn't approach her. I stood back at the back of the tabernacle where you were meeting outside. And she came to me. And she said hello to me and greeted me. She spoke to me. And her address to me opened up a whole new possibility for that week. It became eventually a possibility for my life. She spoke to me. That's what it took. The God of all creation. The God who spoke and brought creation into being by his word spoke to you and your people. That's your great advantage. God speaks and God makes himself known. Let me ask you a question. What brings you to this place? Why do we gather together? And what do we gather around? When the Spirit of God created the church on the day of Pentecost, we're told that the church began to meet in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And the first matter of the concern as they united together to meet was to receive the apostles' doctrine. They met in order that they might gain the advantage of hearing and learning the revealed word of God, a word that had now found its fulfillment and its fullness in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the spoken word of God that had now culminated under the apostolic witness in the word who was made flesh, so that all of the word was about Christ. It was the word of God bringing to us the flesh, the word of God, Christ himself. Exalted in these things. This was the grace that they had received. This was the truth that they received. This was the life that they longed for. This was the salvation that was theirs. It was gathering to hear and learn and sit under the expression of God's truth and God's word. So what brings you to gather? What is it that you want and that you prize in this thing that you call the Christian life? What's the chief thing? Shouldn't it be this? That God speaks to you? That God in creative power lets his voice echo in your ears? Shouldn't it be that his spirit can take this word that we are considering this morning and through it communicate his voice and his truth to our souls? Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, how will we have life in our churches if God's not speaking, if his word is not spoken? Is that what you long for? Is that where your direction is put? Is the great expectation and desire of your life when you gather with other believers is to gather to hear the voice of God speaking and being heard? The question that should be asked at the end of any lesson in the Bible or any sermon that's preached is, was the Word of God clearly presented? Was it playfully and clearly put forth? Did I hear it? Did God speak to me? Was I listening? That's where life comes from. That's where the creation comes from. You know, the church, before the Reformation, had turned to rituals and sacraments from which to build up their sense of identity. The symbols of the mass and the mysteries of the ritual of the church were put forward to impress people and set upon them experiences that would fill them with awe and wonder and would captivate their attention and their allegiance to the church. Well, just gin up enough emotional experience in their life, if we can just somehow impress them with the awe of the encounters they have, that will suffice and that will be enough. These rituals and these sacraments actually represented spiritual realities, but eventually the spiritual truth was set aside. And to most, only the outward forms remained and they were hollow. But then the Great Reformation came. And in the Great Reformation, there was a reclaiming of the Word of God. Sola Scriptura, God's Word alone. And eventually, as a result of that, the table and the altar and the outward forms of ritual were set to the side of the church. And at the center of the church, a pulpit was set where the Word of God was to be placed and preached and proclaimed. And that was central to the life of the church. This Word taught and spoken, it was what the people gathered and longed to hear simply this. God's word being put forth was the one great advantage in the church. A pulpit with an open Bible. I'm concerned now for the church. We seem to be moving back to what will impress. What will delight. What will somehow stir up the people's emotion. Agitate a sense of allegiance, what will keep them coming back for another emotional boost for a week to come. The pulpit sometimes set aside. You can't even identify it sometimes in churches. Sometimes it's a little narrow music. I'm not making fun of the architecture here, but interestingly enough, when the Word of God became central in the Reformation, it changed the architecture of the ways in which people met and what was at the center of the church. Now you've got a bandstand and you've got light shows and you've got things put up to make sure that your advertisement's up there and your announcements of all the things that you're doing. I went to a church on one occasion just about three years ago, a large church, a massive church. I'd known the pastor of that church for years. He had felt that the reason that church had grown and was significant was because he faithfully preached the word of God and I didn't want to argue with him, but I knew that that church was delivering on every felt need that people had in the community and it was providing resources for them and it was just drawing people through all kinds of programs. You had all kinds of youth programs and sporting events, you name it. I'm telling you, if he was preaching the word, but they stripped away all those other things, you would lose your audience to a large extent. Went back to this church. It had now grown up at that time to be a church of about 10,000 people. On the front stage was a, a worship band that was playing. 
on the back of the stage, about four stories tall at least, it was huge. Screen of images that were being cast on it, like water moving forward and as imagery was taking place. And then when someone got up to speak, as he was speaking, his speech was coordinated with this production and the show that was taking on in the background. You, you couldn't even look at the speaker. Just looking at it. I remember you talking about Jonah and the whale and all of a sudden Jonah is thrown overboard and all of a sudden you see yourself sinking down in the water and there was just this drama that was going on. And then when it was all done, they opened up the courtyard and there was a place for everybody to go to get a lunch so they didn't have to go to, since Chick-fil-A wasn't open on Sunday, there was a place where you get a good chicken sandwich. But the word of God is the hunger to hear him speak, to know that that's where life begins. And that's where life is sustained. And that's the one thing we long for above everything else. What's needed today? Reformation. The word to become central again. What's needed again today? Revival. Hearts that are not satisfied with a legacy and a heritage and a ritual and a declaration of connection to things that have been taught in the past. But a spiritual reality that makes it essential, makes it essential. Give us your word. We'll gather around it. We'll celebrate it. We'll sing our songs. We'll sing our praise. We'll worship. We'll pray. It'll rise from a people united around the faithful instruction of God's word. God's word. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Jesus, I would faithful be. Give me the power. Give me the power. Dear Jesus, I would be faithful in the day of plenty and in the day of want. Lord, help us to be faithful when all men call out for this hurt speech of God and help us to be faithful when there's a famine of your word in the land that we might long for nothing more than that you might speak to us. And Lord, help us to judge where your voice is heard. It's not the word of ethics. It's not the word of political analysis. It's not a word in which we differentiate ourselves from whatever the current cultural movement is in our age. It's the word of redemption and regeneration and life in your son. It's the story of an account of you pursuing a people who in their stubbornness and sinfulness had fallen away and all that you've done to reclaim us and win us and save us by your own mighty arm. It's the word of your grace and your mercy outpoured. It's the word that calls from us faith in him alone. Oh God, if we hear preached before us just lessons that commit to us resolve to stick to our political guns or our cultural distinctiveness, God, let it dry up within us. Give us the word that gives us Jesus, his life, his power, his presence. May that be what we long for and so that the church might again be true light in a dark world and might regain the saltiness that preserves this age from judgment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.